We're looking at Joshua chapter 2 today, so if you'll look there, we'll be reading that in a few moments. One of the strangest games, college football history, November 11th, 1939. Texas Tech and Centenary College racked up a total of 77 punts. I didn't say points. They racked up a total of 77 punts. Texas Tech won the punt derby. They had 38. Centenary had 37. They still, and I'm fairly certain, will always hold first and second place for the most punts in the record books. Of the 77 total punts, 67 of them, the 77 punts, 67 of them came on first down. And there were 22 punts in a row in the third and fourth quarters. Texas Tech ended the game with minus one total yards. And Centenary had a giant 30 yards. Final score was zero to zero. Nobody won. Nobody lost. Nobody took any risks. We are risk-averse people. Manufacturers are so concerned about the risk of liability that they now put warning labels on absolutely everything. This past year, a men's electric razor sold with the label, never use while sleeping. (laughs) A child stroller, remove child before folding. A lawn tractor manufacturer He got really serious uh, about it with a danger, avoid death label. And my favorite is one on a fishing lure that says, harmful if swallowed. (laughs) I was thinking about this and thinking maybe the Christian life should come with a warning label. Trusting Jesus may cause, you know how they say it really fast? A reduction in assets, sleepless nights, contact with sinners, hard work, damaged relationships, persecution, betrayal, misunderstanding, consult your pastor before believing. Somehow, we've gotten the idea that by becoming Christians, we can reduce risk in our life. As if that were the goal of following Jesus. If you were to ask them why they want to know and do God's will, and people were honest, I think many of them would say, so that I won't have to take any risks or make any mistakes. But had you asked earlier disciples of Jesus if following Jesus had eliminated risk from their lives or disciples of Jesus in other parts of the world today, they would answer, eliminate risk? Are you kidding? Following Jesus has quadrupled my risk. If eliminating risk is what I wanted, I never would have come to Jesus, or I would have beat it out of here as fast as I could. Then why come to Jesus at all? Come for the life that was meant for you, the life you've always wanted, for the life, as St. Paul put it, that is truly life. It's a life of meaning, productivity, challenge, glory, It's a life that makes a difference, not a life that hides in the corner. We're going to spy out this life over the next few weeks. 
see what's there, the rewards and the risks. And we're going to learn something about doing that, how to go about it from Joshua chapter 2. So I want to read Joshua chapter 2, the first 15 verses. I encourage you when you get home today to read the rest of the chapter down through verse 24. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the the men came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she'd laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. By the way, we talked about the ban last week. That word that's translated completely destroyed is the same word that I gave you as the ban. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and that you'll save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now there's an important backstory to Joshua chapter 2 that we need to know if we're going to appreciate what's going on here. See, this is not the first time Joshua has been in this position. 38 years earlier, Israel had been on the verge of entering the promised land. But everything came crashing down. Folks got hurt. Life got put on hold for 38 years because people thought the risk was too great. Now, after 38 years, Joshua finds himself back in the same place, not geographically now, but circumstantially. And you have to believe he was remembering the past and reliving some of the same emotions he'd experienced the first time. The story of that first foray into the promised land is told in Numbers 13 and 14. You should read Numbers 13 and 14 too when you go home today. It all began when the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. So Moses chose 12 men, one from each of the ancestral tribes, and sent them on a mission with a very specific objective. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Remember, 
Moses nor none of the Israelite people had ever seen the land. Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? The 12 scouts, or spies as they're frequently called, spent about a month and a half in the land, going through it from north to south, east to west. And when they came back, they brought a glowing report. The land really does flow with milk and honey, and they displayed some of the produce that they had taken to Moses and to everyone who had assembled at this kind of town hall meeting. The land was rich and fertile, but, they said, it's just too risky. The cities are large and fortified. The people are tough and numerous, and to top it all off, the descendants of Anak are there. They're giants. There's no way we can fight them. Now, Moses hadn't sent the 12 spies to ascertain their likelihood of success. They went with a clear word from God. They were supposed to conquer the land. The question was not whether they would take it, but how they would take it. The spies were tasked with collecting intelligence data, not formulating a risk assessment. As soon as the spies had made the report, 10 of them felt the need to, to add a majority opinion. Even though God told them to go up and take the land, they argued, this is Numbers chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Now, they just said, it flows with milk and honey, and it's rich and fertile. But now they say it devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. Really? All of the people living there are giants? We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Now, that was ten of the spies. Two of them published a dissenting opinion. They said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. So let's go right now. But they were shouted down by the rest. One of the two spies who said that, let's go, let's obey God, let's take the land, was Joshua, who now finds himself, after so many years, back in the very same place. You know what? That happens in life. We keep coming back to the same places. New opportunities to obey God. Did you notice in the reading from Joshua that he sent only two spies into the land, which just happened to be the number of the faithful scouts the first time he went through this. He wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. And did you notice that he sent them secretly? This time, there's not going to be a town hall meeting to decide whether or not to follow God's command. That proved a disaster the first time. And besides that, The kingdom of God is not a democracy. He doesn't put his will up for a vote. That's one of the most difficult things for us as Americans to accept. After the first debacle, why did Joshua send spies at all? It had been a disaster. Why do it again? 
I think he sent spies the second time because he understood that sending them the first time had not been a mistake. And how could it be? God was the one who directed them to do it. Now, if you read what Moses says in Deuteronomy 1, people came to Moses and said, let's send spies. But in Numbers 13, he says, God told us to send spies. And I think what that means is he held that up before the Lord, and the Lord said, yeah, that's a good idea. Go do it. Sending them the first time was not the problem. The problem was that the spies didn't stick to their mission. They were sent to gather information that would help them decide how to do God's will. But they used it to decide whether to do God's will. Many of our problems in the spiritual life spring from the same error. We go through the motions... We conform to expectations, but the truth is that deep down, we've never really decided that we're going to do God's will. We want to wait and see how it's going to work out, what God wants from us, what it's going to cost us, and then we'll decide whether we're willing to do it. For that reason, some people never come to understand what God's will is because he doesn't normally share his plans with people he doesn't trust to carry them out. So Paul writes, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God says, present your life to me as a living sacrifice. That is, commit to doing my bidding, no matter what it is I ask, when it is I call, or where it is I take you. And once you've made that commitment, I'll let you in on my plans. But we say, give me the details first, God, so that I can decide whether I want to do your will. So I can put together a risk assessment and analyze the profit-loss potentials. And then I'll say yes or no. The person who takes that approach, if that's you, you take that approach, you'll hardly ever receive direction from the Lord. Some people wonder, why doesn't God guide me? That's usually the reason. The question, if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, or even if you're not, is, what does God have for me? How do I comply with his desires for my life and his will for the world? Because it's not just about you. We do well to explore God's will the same way the two spies explored Jericho or the way Joshua and Caleb explored the promised land to discover how to do God's will, not to decide whether to do God's will. As I mentioned last week, there's a promised land for you to make your own, a life for you to claim. God is calling you to take hold of the life that is truly life. It is a life flowing with milk and honey with joys to be experienced and depths of meaning to be explored. But to take possession of it, you will have to face giants. Habits, certainly. Even addictions. And fears, ignorances, prejudices, pressures. There's a promised land for you, but there are also battles to be waged and giants to slay. I invite you to explore your promised land. 
Whether you have entered into a trust relationship with God as the Israelites had already done, they'd already been redeemed. Or whether you're not yet one of God's people, spy out the land, the life that God has in store for you. See what it's like. If you do, you'll find help in unexpected places. The spies that Joshua sent certainly did. The NIV calls the woman who helped them a prostitute. But if you look at your footnotes, you'll see that it includes the possible translation of innkeeper, at least in the NIV. Some versions just say innkeeper. But since inns in ancient times were almost always places of prostitution, either translation is probably fine, and both are probably accurate. Remember that Joshua sent the spies out from Shittim. They had been there once before. The last time that Joshua was there, he was still serving as Moses' aide. And the men of Israel got into trouble, big trouble, by having sex with some of the local women, almost certainly prostitutes. You can read that story in Numbers chapter 25. There was an uproar, and a lot of people died. And it was really, really bad. Now, 38 years later, Joshua sends two spies out from that very place where all the trouble had been to reconnoiter the promised land. And who was the very first person they encountered? A prostitute named Rahab. But help arises in in unexpected places. Rahab hid the spies, saved their lives, planned their getaway, There are at least three remarkable things in these verses about Rahab. The first is, they represent one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a woman in the entire Bible. And she's a prostitute. Secondly, these verses include the first spoken confession of the Lord God in the Bible. You don't find one in the Pentateuch. The Lord your God, this is verse 11, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. The first public confession of the Lord is God doesn't come from a priest or a prophet. It comes from a prostitute. And the third aspect of these verses that's worthy of remark has to do with the ban. You remember the ban? The the order to destroy or drive out all the people currently inhabiting the promised land. It's the most disconcerting part of the whole book of Joshua. And yet here we see how the ban actually functioned. When Rahab confessed faith in Israel's God, she's no longer banned. She, a Gentile and a prostitute, and her family were saved without violating the ban. Because Israel's God is a God of mercy. He's not willing that any should perish, as St. Peter puts it but that all should come to repentance. Now, there's one other thing about Rahab. We don't learn it here, but in the New Testament. She's not only released from the ban. She's included in the people of God. She eventually married a Jewish man named Solomon and had a son named Boaz, who, like his father, also married a Gentile woman. There's a whole book of the Bible about her called Ruth. She became the grandmother of King David, which means that Rahab, the prostitute, was an ancestor of our Lord Jesus himself. If you'll take hold of the life that God has for you, if you will enter to conquer your promised land, God will send you help, often from unexpected sources. And more exciting still, 
you will be a help to others who are staking out their own claim on the promised land. God will use you. One of the frequent invitations in the Bible is come and see. Come and see the works of the Lord. That's Psalm 46. Come and see what God has done, how awesome his works on man's behalf. And then there's the promise at the end of Isaiah. They will come and see my glory. When Jesus is very first, the very first two disciples inquired about him, he said, come and you'll see. They stumbled all around trying to ask him what they wanted to ask him. He just said, come on, come and see. The psalmist invites us to come and taste that the Lord is good. Well, take him up on that invitation. Sample the goods of the promised land. Let me briefly describe some of them to you. Your promised land will be where God is in your life. You can be in your life where God is not, but your promised land will be where God is. It's where you know him, think often of him, are filled with his spirit. Your promised land centers around him. Every good thing is welcome there, and there are many good things. But your plans are all made in reference to God. He's your home. He's your reference point. Wherever you go, he's your starting place. Wherever you are, it's to him that you return. Your life revolves around him and the promised land. Your promised land is a place of love. There are many things and many people there to love. In your promised land, you learn to love spouses and children and bosses and coworkers and even enemies. The way of love runs through this land, and you travel on it all the time. Here you learn to do everything. Work, play, serve, laugh, cry, pray, dance. You learn to do everything in love. It's a life of love. In your promised land, you'll not think first of yourself. That oldest burden of slavery is lifted in the promised land. Outside your promised land, you need to have things your way. But inside, you are free to look out for the interests of others. In your promised land, you can be yourself. Or really, you can become yourself. You don't have to hide. You don't have to manipulate others. You can, as St. John puts it, walk in the light as he is in the light, and so have fellowship with one another, with God, certainly but then even with your brothers and sisters. So spy out your promised land and see what's there. Now, how do you start? Well, in the Bible. It's written by people who know what the promised life is like, know how to claim it, and know what giants you'll have to face in the process. So read it. You'll also do well to talk people who are already in the promised land. Now, I don't mean by that people have a perfect life. You're not going to find any of them. But people who have said yes to God and are proceeding to take hold of the life that is truly life, they may still be, they will still be fighting giants. Sometimes of habit, of fear, of prejudice, of pressure. But they're fighting them from within this life, not from the outside. Some of those people to talk to, go to church here. Get to know them. Some of those people come from places far away, both in space and in time. After my entrance into the promised life, I was helped enormously by a man in my church who was more than twice my age, almost three times my age. 
as well as by many men and women long dead, or maybe I should say fully alive, who show me the promised life in their writings. The thing is, if you will set out to claim the life that God has promised you and that Christ died to give you, God will send you help all along the way. Help from Zion. He'll not leave you orphans. He will direct you, correct you, and when you fall, he'll pick you up. So what are you going to do? Settle for a life with as little risk as possible and with as little gain? Are you going to punt on first down over and over again? Are you going to get into the game? Maybe you're not sure. I don't know about all this. Well, then explore. Start asking questions, seeking answers. Come and see. Maybe you are sure. If that's the case, tell God and someone else, spouse, a friend, spiritual advisor, that you're going for it. I'm, this is the life I want. Say, God, with your help, I'll take hold of the life for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And then get going. And you will certainly have his help along the way. Now let's pray. What I ask of you, God, is to show us what the life in Jesus can be. It's beauty, it's glory, it's power. Until our whole hearts radiate with desire for that life. Show us also the giants and the scars that we're going to endure. And show us this life as we look at your son, Jesus, who is our life. We praise you and thank you for him. Amen.